Hi there, thanks for joining us on Astronomy Daily. Andrew Dunkley here, your host. Hope you're well. Coming up on today's show, another major discovery by the James Webb Space Telescope. A NEO surveyor has been approved. What does that mean? Uh, I will explain. And the last ever photo on the moon has been found. We'll tell you all about that and more on this edition of Astronomy Daily. Astronomy Daily, the podcast. With your host, Andrew Dunkley. And joining me to talk news and other things is our reporter, Hallie. Hi, Hallie. Hi, Andrew. Did you realise it's been 50 years since Apollo 17 lifted off for the moon? Yeah, I I read about that. Yes, um, it was the last of the Apollo missions. There was supposed to be an 18. Did you know that? Yes. Apparently the public had lost interest in Apollo and the budget was an issue too, so the mission was scrubbed. There were also supposed to be two more Apollo missions, 19 and 20, but now we have Artemis. So what goes around comes around, I guess. Yeah, true. Uh, And I believe some of the resources from those scrubbed Apollo missions were used for Skylab, so it wasn't a total waste. Uh, But yeah, we'll be talking about something that's popped up from Apollo 17 a little later. But first, the news, please, Hallie. led by Blue Origin and Dynetics, who missed out in NASA's first competition to develop a lander to transport astronauts to the lunar surface, have submitted proposals for a NASA competition to select a second lander. Blue Origin announced that it submitted a proposal for NASA's Sustaining Lunar Development Competition to fund development of a lander capable of transporting astronauts to and from the lunar surface. As with its original human landing system proposal, Blue Origin called the companies it partnered with on the SLD proposal the national team. Draper and Lockheed Martin, who were part of that original proposal, rejoined the new team. Blue Origin also added Astrobotic, a company developing robotic lunar landers, and Honeybee Robotics, a space technology company acquired by Blue Origin in January. Blue Origin did not disclose details about its proposed lander or the roles its partners would play. The company instead emphasized the national aspect of its team, with suppliers in 48 of 50 states, excluding only Nebraska and North Dakota. China is already considering adding modules to its recently completed Tiangong Space Station complex, according to a senior space official. China recently completed construction of its three-module, T-shaped Tiangong Space Station and conducted its first crew handover, seeing the Shenzhou. 14 mission astronauts welcome aboard three new astronauts from Shenzhou-15. The potential next phase would be adding a new core module according to Wang Xiang, commander of the space station system at the China Academy of Space Technology. Wang said that the additional module would provide a larger and more comfortable environment for the astronauts, while providing an environment for better applications of scientific payloads, both inside and outside the module. Construction of the world's biggest radio astronomy facility, the Square Kilometer Array Observatory, has begun. The observatory is a global project 30 years in the making. With two huge two telescopes, one low-frequency in Australia and the other mid-frequency array in South Africa, the project will see further into the history of the universe than ever before. These antennas are designed to tune in to low radio frequencies of 50 to 350 MHz. At these frequencies, the radio waves are very long which means more familiar-looking dishes are an inefficient way to catch them. 
Instead, the dipole antennas operate much like TV antennas, with the radio waves from the universe exciting electrons within their metal arms. The SKA Observatory will map this fog of neutral hydrogen at low radio frequencies, which will allow scientists to explore the births and deaths of the earliest stars and galaxies. During construction it will be switched on in sections so it will be operational sooner than its completion date of 2028. NASA's Ingenuity Mars helicopter has set a new record for the highest altitude it has flown at by flying 14 meters above the Martian surface. It reached its previous record altitude of 12 meters during three flights. Ingenuity is a small solar-powered rotorcraft that landed on the Martian surface on February 18, 2021, along with the Perseverance rover. When it took off on the Martian surface for the first time on April 19, 2022, it created history by conducting the first powered flight on another planet. And that's the news, Andrew. Thanks, Hallie. We'll catch you later. Now to other things happening in astronomy and space science news and the James Webb Space Telescope uh, continues to dazzle us with its brilliance and its latest uh, revelation is that of being able to see into parts of the sky that are so dark you can't see anything from Earth. But this latest revelation is something extraordinary which Fred Watson, astronomer at large and my partner in crime on the Space Nuts podcast, explains. That's right. Um, so this, this particular research, which has come from the uh, Astrophysical Institute in the Canaries, in Instituto de Astrofisica de Canarias, uh, and I used to have quite a lot to do with the people there. It's um, the Canary Islands uh, Astrophysical Institute. Of course, the Canary Islands have many big telescopes uh, on Teddy, which is uh, uh, on, on on the main sorry the, the main island mm. uh, the island of La Palma has the observatory there that in fact has telescopes I used to work on quite a lot um, so it, it is uh, it is a, a very active organization and what they've done some of the scientists from that uh, institute have uh, basically taken James Webb telescope images of galaxy clusters. And there's one in particular that they've been studying, which is called SMAX J023.3-7327. <laughs> Don't forget that. Yeah, uh, I already have. <laughs> so, well, yeah. um, and they've, so, so what they've done is they've looked um, not just at the galaxies in that cluster, but at the space between the galaxies. Uh, and so um, by analyzing a really faint background light uh, within the cluster, they've, they've essentially identified a population of what we call intra-cluster stars, stars mm. that have uh, probably been spat out of the individual galaxies by, <coughs> by their velocity. Uh, and, <coughs> excuse me, and so the, um, uh, the, the, this is, represents a remarkably large population of, uh, of stars, uh, that, but because they're just, it, it's just this sort of thin layer of stars that are that are that are there in the cluster because they're they're just individual stars rather than galaxies themselves, which are much much brighter. And of course, concentrations of hundreds of billions of stars. Uh, so you've got this this very very faint background glow. Um, it, it's probably impossible to detect it from the ground because. As you know, we've talked about this before. The night sky itself has its has its own natural brightness, yeah. Um, and that 
brightness it comes from principally uh, uh, the uh, atoms in the upper atmosphere sort of relaxing after a hard day in the sun. Uh, they emit this glow, which we call the sky glow. And these, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, these new detections uh, of this faint background of stars from the JWST, the, the web, um, the brightness of that is less than 1% of the brightness of the natural sky background here on Earth. Uh, so that would make it a very difficult task to, to measure from the ground. But put a telescope in space and you get rid of all that natural sky glow. And lo and behold, uh, this uh, population of stars has been revealed. And it's telling these researchers about um, the way probably galaxy mergers have taken place within the cluster. You know, if you, if you imagine uh, galaxies colliding together, as ours will do with the Andromeda galaxy in a few billion years, imagine that process. Then um, you're going to get stars spilling out into the, uh, into the background sky, and that's apparently what we're seeing. Professor Fred Watson, and you can hear the full interview uh, with Fred on the latest edition of Space Nuts, out now. The Astronomy Daily Podcast with Andrew Dunkley. Now to some new research that may, and I say may with inverted commas, that may have solved the puzzle of how in, uh, amino acids uh, formed within space rocks that are thought to have seeded Earth in the early stages of its existence and therefore created life. Uh, now, during the early solar system, things were pretty nasty, violent, volatile, whatever you like, uh, with high-energy gamma rays uh, possibly triggering chemical reactions that created the amino acids uh, inside meteorites. And then they bombarded Earth and kick-started the origin of life, according to this new study. Uh, meteorites are made from uh, the material left over from the formation of uh, our planets, this happened about four to five billion years ago and, of course, they have frequently smashed into the surfaces of young planets, including Earth, uh, during our um, early formation years. Now, scientists think that this bombardment uh, could have included a class of meteorites known as carbonaceous crondites and they may have contained significant, uh, significant amounts of water and small, molecule, uh, more, small molecules like amino acids, and it became something of a delivery system that could have contributed significantly to the emergence of life on our planet. The question remains, though, how these molecules formed within meteorites in the first place, and that remains a bit of a puzzle. But uh, the information is available through the journal ACS Central Science. Now, uh, NASA has approved the development of a space telescope, but it's not like Hubble and it's not like the James Webb Space Telescope. This one has a very simple prime objective, to find near-Earth objects. Yep, uh, anything that could endanger life on Earth that hits us, like a big rock, is known as a near-Earth object. And so NASA has announced that it has confirmed the near-Earth object or NEO surveyor mission after getting past all the red tape that's required to approve a mission like this. So it moves into the next phase of its development. Uh, NEO surveyor will fly a telescope half a metre in diameter equipped with an infrared camera. 
Uh, it'll operate from Earth's, uh, the Earth-Sun L1 Lagrange point, one and a half million miles away from Earth in the direction of the Sun, and the spacecraft will be able to uh, scan large regions of space looking for near-Earth objects, including those that could pose a future threat to Earth. It's, uh, it's very, very good to know that this is going to happen, and we don't have to wait a heck of a long time after they've spent the $1.2 billion to develop it. It should be ready for launch around about June of 2028. And finally, and we did mention the 50th anniversary of the liftoff of Apollo 17, uh, a British photographer has unearthed what is thought to be the last photo ever taken on the surface of the moon. It probably won't be the last, given what's happening with the Artemis missions. But uh, Andy Saunders, uh, who's a leading expert of NASA restoration, has shared um, a newly mastered or remastered image of uh, Harrison Jack Schmidt, who was a a geologist on board uh, Apollo 17. Uh, The photograph was taken by fellow astronaut Jean Cernan, and the release of the image marks uh, the anniversary of 50 years since Apollo 17 was launched on December 7th, 1972. Mr Saunders, uh, who gave up his day job as a property developer to go through 35,000 photographs taken during the Apollo missions, uh, has dug this one up. It is thought to be the last one taken on the lunar surface before all the Apollo missions finished. The images show what the Apollo astronauts saw on the moon in very, very significant detail. Uh, The project took him 10,000 hours and 400 of the photographs are featured in his new book, Apollo Remastered, which I think would be an amazing thing to have. Uh, If you want to chase up those stories, jump online to astronomydaily.io and you can subscribe to the newsletter while you're there. And don't forget the latest edition of Space Nuts out now. And we love your reviews. So please uh, give us your reviews through your favourite online um, platform, whether you're reviewing Space Nuts or Astronomy Daily, either or both. Uh, We'd be happy to hear your thoughts. Hallie. We're done. Anything before we go today? Yes, Andrew. Have you ever wished you could travel back in time and change things or fix mistakes? Um, yeah, I actually wrote a science fiction novel on that very topic. But uh, yeah, uh, especially the final round of the championships in 2010 where I hit the ball out of bounds on the 72nd hole and lost by two. I'd really love to change that. Uh, why do you bring it up? Well, today is pretend to be a time traveller day. You're kidding. That's a thing? Yeah, it was developed by an online community in 2007. They say the first mention of time travel was published in ancient Hindi. Is that right? I wouldn't have thought that people would have considered time travel that long ago. Fascinating. Thanks, Hallie. Uh, You stay safe and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. And until next time, this is Andrew Dunkley for Astronomy Daily. (laughs) Astronomy Daily, the podcast. With your host, Andrew Dunkley.